Turn to uh, Esther chapter 4 in your Bibles, please. We're continuing our look in our sermons, uh, looking through the the book of Esther in the Old Testament and considering uh, its message to us today. We are in Esther chapter 4. I'm going to go ahead and read that chapter. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible or you can look at the screen behind me. Let's prepare ourselves for the reading of God's word. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, There was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to be put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of God. In this passage, we uh, reach a decisive point in the book of Esther, which ends up not only being a decisive point in Esther herself's life, but the point which sparks hope for deliverance of God's people in the shadow of this edict of doom that has been proclaimed against them throughout the entire kingdom of Persia. But before we get to that, let me, uh, we read of the, um, the, the deep sorrow 
and lament uh, and grief of God's people, particularly seen in Mordecai, verse 1, we see that he had torn his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and not just uh, in his own house behind a closed door, but out in public, out in the city, all the way up until the, the king's gate, he is weeping and wailing loudly and bitterly. And verse 3, you know, it's not only Mordecai, but this was widespread among the Jewish people. Everywhere the edict came, there was great mourning. Verse 3, great mourning, fasting, weeping, and and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And these were all cultural expressions of grief in that time and place. We might do it differently today when we grieve, but uh, that's not really the point. The point is this, that it's important to note and take a minute to recognize and remember that this is a, a, an expression of God's people that is in the Bible to remind us that to grieve and lament and mourn is not only a human response in the face of suffering and tragedy and evil, but a godly response in the face of suffering and tragedy and evil. And I want to say this and just, you know, emphasize this to make sure that we remember that nothing I say nothing we consider uh, as we consider the theme of God's providence that we've been thinking about in the book of Esther. God's sovereignty and uh, governing the events of this world towards, uh, according to his good plan and towards his good purposes. We want to affirm all of that, but nothing we say in affirming that should uh, take away this uh, freedom and legitimacy of expressing lament and grief and sorrow in the experiences of suffering in this life. Nothing that we say about God's providence should take that away, but it should transform it, right? It should transform it. And now, in, in, in Christ... And with the promises of the gospel, we have all the more reason to have a transformed experience of grief and suffering. Not that we don't feel it and feel it deeply. Not that we don't experience it in this fallen world of sin and evil and death. But that when we grieve, we do it in hope. In hope of the promises of the gospel. And, you know, in, in Esther and Mordecai and his experience of grief here, it's, it's uh, you know, not clear what hope of earthly deliverance he had to consider, if any. And, you know, that's true of us, too, in the experiences of life, that the gospel does not promise us a certain earthly outcome or deliverance in this life. But the hope of the gospel isn't only for this life. It's not for our, our uh, but it's an unfading, eternal hope in which we find inexpressible joy even as we suffer all kinds of real sorrowful griefs and trials now in this life. And so we grieve, but we do not grieve. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. But we have the hope of Jesus whatever we face in this life.
And Mordecai uh, and the, the Jewish people, everywhere the edict of doom has been proclaimed. There are these expressions of lament. There's, you know, the picture as you try to enter into this scene is everywhere you go throughout the whole expansive empire of the kingdom of Persia, you hear echoes of wailing and bitter cries and weeping everywhere. Everywhere except one place, did you notice? Mordecai expresses his sorrow all throughout the the city and Susa up to the point of only as far as, in verse 2, the king's gate. Because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Everywhere through the whole kingdom, there's weeping occurring and being heard. Everywhere except within the palace walls. And as the chapter uh, develops, you see, as we read, you see Esther herself living in the palace seems unaware of the edict that's been proclaimed. Weeping and wailing everywhere except within the palace walls because, you know, think back to the picture that's been painted of life within the palace walls, right? Because, you know, hey, why should the king's bottomless luxuriousness and endless self-serving, self-indulgent pleasure-seeking and calloused apathy and indifference be interrupted or disturbed or tainted in any way by the suffering of the real world, right? It's, it's, it's a picture of total indifference. Behind the palace walls, the king enjoys this uh, blissfully ignorant insulation from uh, the pains of the real world, unmoved by the suffering of these, uh, you know, those peasants beyond his palace walls. It's a, it's a, it's a shocking picture, I think, and just think about this. Aren't you glad that we worship and serve a king that didn't remain unmoved by the suffering of this fallen world. He didn't remain insulated behind the, uh, the walls of heaven, but the Son of God, the person of Jesus, in compassion entered into this world of suffering to live in it and experience it himself. And not just that, but to take our suffering upon himself in love, to put himself under the wrath of God against sin, to suffer in our place, to lay down his life for our salvation. Our king did that. Moved by compassion, he entered into this world of evil and experienced suffering for us. And now can sympathize with us and help us in our times of suffering and bring comfort, the comfort of God himself to us in our affliction. And so as God's people, let's not be like the king of Persia, right? Let's not be afraid or unmoved to step outside of our walls of comfort into the sufferings and griefs of those around us. And let's not be afraid to let others into our own suffering and grief so that we can give and receive the compassion of Christ to one another. 
So Mordecai gets as close as he can to Esther. Finally, you know, he gets the attention of one of her attendants who uh, tell her about Mordecai's behavior. She's distressed. She sends him clothes to put on, uh, presumably so then he could then be able to enter into the palace, but he refuses because of his great grief. And so all the resulting communication and dialogue happens through intermediaries. And we're just going to take a minute to summarize here. Verse 7 and 8, Mordecai fills Esther in on everything, the edict, the bribe, everything he's gathered and gained and knows about the situation. And he uh, tells her to enter into the king's presence to plead for the king's mercy, to plead uh, to the king for on behalf of her people. But there's a twofold problem that uh, Esther relates back to him in verses 10 and 11. The first part of the problem is, you know, the king isn't the most accessible and approachable person it, that there was, right? And, you know, he needs to be protected from attempts on his life and uh, also just from the, uh, you know, the problems of people that he doesn't want to be concerned about. He isn't accessible. You couldn't just drop in on the king. Uh, He wasn't very approachable because if you did just drop on the king unsummoned and if he wasn't too happy about it, you didn't get a good, a very good response. The guards, bodyguards around the king used their, that were holding big swords or axes or whatever else, used those liberally to get rid of you, uh, uh, to remove you from the king's presence. Uh, the king would invite people into his presence, but not even his own wife, the queen, we see, could enter into his presence without his own invitation. And so that leads to the second part of the problem, that Esther seems to think that uh, Xerxes has cooled on her a bit, you know, and, you know, I don't know that that's really too surprising uh, based on his... Uh, character traits or lack thereof that we've seen so far, but that the king had not called her into his presence for the last 30 days, and it seems her outlook is pessimistic that that would change anytime soon. And uh, so that compounds the problem. Not only is she sure, unsure she'd be received favorably and survive the uninvited approach into the king's presence. But even if she did, she's not sure she'd be able to effectively persuade the king since uh, it seems that her, his favor with her has reached a low point. So she's not sure she could approach to begin with. She's not sure she could persuade. All of this then escalates the tension, Right? Esther, the Jewish girl who seemingly impossibly and against all odds became the Persian queen and who now is positioned as the only source of hope against this decree of doom that's been proclaimed now doesn't have access or ability to approach her husband and seems to have lost influence with him and so seemingly can't be that source of deliverance that she seems so perfectly positioned to be. But Mordecai encourages her in his response then. He encourages her, strongly encourages her to, you, you know, you got to take the risk, right? And, and his response in summary is simply, well, if you save your life, you lose it anyway. But if you risk your life, you just might save it and not just yours alone, but all of your people, the whole Jewish nation. 
See, Mordecai's response in verse 13 and 14 are admittedly difficult to understand and interpret, and I don't normally do this. Normally, I, I, um, you know, I think we can trust our translations that we have in front of us, but I'm going to disagree with the translation we read. It's not terribly consequential, but it just uh, puts a different spin on his response, I think, and I'll uh, let you know where, when we get there. But verse 13, I think what we see in Mordecai's response is uh, to Esther is, hey, you're not safe from the edict just because you're in the king's house. After all, she's Jewish too, right? Esther's Jewish. And that wasn't known at first. It's either become known or it either would certainly become known as, uh, uh, as the edict was being carried out. In other words, Mordecai is encouraging her to come to grips with the fact that she's already in danger. Whether she goes into the king's presence or not, it's just that if she doesn't take that risk of going into the king's presence, there's no hope. But if she does, there is hope. In verse 14, uh, this is the part that can be taken in a couple different ways here. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Well, that, our translation makes it a positive statement uh, reflecting Mordecai's hope that there would be human deliverance uh, coming from another source. Um, but I think it's better to take in a different way, uh, making a negative statement, uh, something like this. For if you remain silent at this time, Will relief and deliverance for the Jews come from another place? No. But you and your family, which is Mordecai himself, remember, will perish. So I think it's meant to be a negative statement, saying there is no other human source of deliverance. And if we think about, you know, the kingdom of Persia, the power of Haman's position, the sweeping nature of the edict, Haman's resolve, evil intent to carry it out, the irrevocability of Persian law, which we've been uh, hinted at, uh, and along with the desperate lamenting of Mordecai and the desperation of his appeal to Esther, in light of that, it doesn't seem that Mordecai's conviction is that there's other human deliverance ready available. It's hard to imagine what that could or would even be. All his hopes are pinned on Esther, and he sees her as the only source humanly speaking, of, of deliverance. And uh, it seems nearly impossible to imagine there could be any other earthly deliverance. Of course, God could do a miracle, right? Remember, there's no miracles in the book of Esther, right? Uh, there's not even mention of God's name, and so that is sort of incongruous with the whole way the story is told. And uh, understanding that that verse in this way makes more sense of the next verse. Uh, why would Esther and her family, which is Mordecai, why would they perish if there was some other earthly human deliverance? And he's saying, no, you know, if you don't act, there's no other deliverance, and you and I will perish too, along with everybody. And so rather than that being a positive statement, uh, it's a negative statement. No, there's no other earthly deliverance. You are the only source of earthly deliverance. And if you don't act, you and your fa father's family will perish. This is an edict of the Persian king. 
a law that can't be revoked, the will of the Persian king who has total power against a people who are powerless exiles. What other deliverance could there be? And that's why Esther needs to come to grips with the reality of the situation, the danger she's in, but not just that, also the position which God has placed her in to be that source of deliverance. One route has hope, so why not take the risk? And Mordecai's faith, then, I do think we see an expression of his faith that comes in the last statement. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You know, this who knows could sound to us like a uh, expresses uh, skepticism at worst or, or doubt or maybe just mere possibility, but it's probably more meant to express a confident hope. And in fact, it reflects biblical language where uh, the, 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 there is an expression of the hope of God uh, showing compassion and mercy to his people when they turn to him in their need. The previous question, which has a negative answer then, deliverance isn't coming from anywhere else. This question, of course, has a positive answer. Yes, you have come to this place for such a time as this. And right here, this is the most direct statement then we see uh, in the book to, to express what is otherwise implied everywhere uh, through the whole story of God's providence and uh, ruling over events according to his plan towards his good purpose. God brought her then and there for this reason, for this purpose. And all along the way, God had been at work. He opened up a a door for a new queen to be sought with uh, Vashti's removal. He put a Jewish girl into that place as queen so that when his people were in danger, she could be in the place to act on their behalf. But she's still got to act, right? And this is a good reminder to us that uh, though and as much as we affirm God's sovereignty, And God's providence is control to rule all things according to his purpose and work all things for our good. That doesn't mean that we are then exempt from or relieved of the responsibility to act and do what God calls us to. And in the Bible, we see those two truths held together all the time. God's sovereignty on the one hand and human responsibility on the other hand, always held together, fitting together, one not undoing the other, but fitting together as two perspectives and causes on all that happens, and the belief in the former doesn't relax or remove the necessity of the latter, that God is in control of all things, doesn't mean we resign ourselves to some fatalistic outcome or act like our actions don't matter, but it's through our actions that God works his purposes out. And so Esther then takes up Mordecai's challenge. She takes up the challenge that not just Mordecai, but God has given her. In verse 16, we see her response. She calls for a fast, uh, which is now not the fasting of mourning and grieving, but the fasting of intercession and prayer because of how crucial and dangerous and important her role is. And so she resolves then, when this is done, I will go to the king. 
even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. These are words of courageous determination on her part, that she's going to do it. Despite the risk to herself, she is going to do what God has put her in that position by his providence to do. And it's here in the story that Esther really uh, hits a turning point in terms of, if you think about her character development in the story, she's really transformed right here. Up to this point, it, you know, and so this moment is really a decisive moment in her faith. Up until verse 15, she's been portrayed in a very passive light. She's been the recipients of the actions of others around her. Circumstances have come upon her. Things happen to her. She's given commands to obey by Mordecai, and she uh, seems to just go with the flow and follow the path of least resistant. One writer sums up how she's been portrayed, that she's been portrayed uh, as more object than agent. But here in verse 15 onward, that all changes. Now she's portrayed in a very active light. Now she's the initiator of action. Now she's not the one receiving commands from Mordecai and she obeying him. But now at the end of the chapter, she's giving commands to Mordecai and he's obeying her. Things don't just happen to her. Now she starts to take action. She no longer seems to just go along with the flow and take the path of least resistance, but she resolves to take a stand and a costly one. And most importantly, maybe, she stands with God's people. Remember, Esther is the only uh, character in the story with two names. Her Persian name, Esther, Queen Esther, and her Jewish name, Hadassah. And uh, I think that is meant to remind us of this dual uh, identity that she's wrestling with. And that's, uh, she's being forced to choose one path or the other. And up until this point, really she's been uh, indistinguishable from a Persian. Indistinguishable from a a Gentile, heathen. Uh, Her ethnicity was in secret. She successfully blended in and uh, lived sort of incognito with the people around her. But now, even though it means identifying with the people Group who is currently uh, scorned and targeted and doomed. People, uh, she identifies with them. She uh, takes a stand with them. She steps into that and fully is now going to, you know, by doing so, takes upon herself that scorn and puts that target on her own back. She, who is queen, sitting at the top of the world, so to speak, now casts her lot in at the bottom of the barrel. She forsakes her identity as Queen Esther, in a sense, and embraces her identity as Hadassah. She's got to choose between those two identities. And the question is, is she going to keep just sort of blending in in life in the palace? Or is she going to identify herself with the people of God and live as a child of God? Moses faced a kind of a similar choice, remember? And the author of Hebrews summarizes it for us in chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. 
Instead, he chose to be mistreated among the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He faced that choice to remain or to identify with the people of God. Esther faced a similar choice. And she chooses her identity as a child of God and to identify with the people of God. And just like for Moses as for Esther, that choice resulted in the deliverance of God's people. Uh, Three quick applications I want us to consider here. First, identifying with the people of God. Identifying with the people of God. Maybe we have sort of tried to live with two identities, a dual identity in this world. Maybe we've lived more as a pagan than as a Christian in this world. Maybe we've been ashamed of Christ or distanced ourselves from the people of God. And you know, on that last question, maybe sometimes it seems wise to distance ourselves from some representations of Christianity that are not Christ-like, But we need to be careful that we don't do that so much that we've made the church so small as to only include those people who get it right all the time like myself, right? That is not Christ-like. And sometimes we need to stop trying to live in this world with two different names, two different identities. Church me and home me. Or church me and work me. Of course, in those different spheres, there are different responsibilities and ways to, uh, uh, you know, in those spheres, but we never leave behind our Christian identity and calling. But we take those into every sphere God calls us to live as lights in the darkness. And we, at times in life, are faced with that choice of Identifying with the people of God, even when it means taking upon ourselves the ridicule of the world and the conclusions of the world that we are weak or foolish or hateful and taking those targets upon our own back, as Esther does. Identifying with the people of God. Second, considering our providential placement in this world. Mordecai challenges Esther to consider that she's come to this particular place at this particular time for this particular purpose, God's purpose. He challenges her not to see it as just a random coincidence or purposeless accident or good luck or bad luck but as the place to which God in his wise but mysterious providence has brought her according to his purpose for his plan. And God does the same thing in our lives. Now, maybe we don't have as consequential purposes resting upon our shoulders as Esther did, or maybe we do. Uh, God places us in particular places at particular times for particular purposes, for his purposes. And that unique placement of God means that in that place he places us, we have unique opportunities and unique responsibilities. And it's not random, and it's not accident, and we too are called to consider what role we can play 
in serving God where God has placed us, whether we particularly like where God has placed us or not. We have a choice, and we can use that for self-serving ends. You know, Esther could have just done nothing and hoped for the outcome of her own personal safety and lived out her days in luxury. She could have just uh, thrown herself a pity party and complained that she didn't ask to be queen anyway. Whether we like it or not, God has put us where we are so that we can be part of his plan, so that we can serve him for his glory. And it's often that we come to see how even in the suffering which we find ourselves in, as lamentable and as difficult as it can be, even that is something God can use to position us or shape us in such a way that we can love and serve others in a way that, in a deeper way than maybe we could have otherwise. And the ways that God has put us together and shaped us, the places he has us, the relationships he's given us, our families, our churches, our neighborhoods, our workplace, maybe even passing situations. Those are opportunities that God's given us to serve and represent him. And they ought to be illumined by a firm conviction of God's sovereign purposes for us. Identifying with the people of God, considering our providential placement and responding in faith to a decisive moment is our third application. Esther responds in faith to a decisive moment. You know, maybe, again, we don't face moments quite as big and quite as decisive and quite as consequential as Esther faced. Maybe sometimes those decisive moments come unexpectedly and pass quickly, but God uses decisive moments in our lives as stepping stones for growth in our own faith. In fact, the very beginning of our journey of faith is a decisive moment when we choose to turn to Christ in faith and commit our lives to him, right? And maybe you today, maybe this is new to you or uh, you've been listening in by keeping those truths at a distance and maybe now God is calling you to that decisive moment in your own life to consider where you stand with Christ, That's the first decisive moment in our journey of faith, but certainly not the last, right? And as we follow Christ, we often encounter these decisive moments where we face the cost of following Christ, where we have to make a choice to live for Christ and follow him or to live for ourselves. As Jesus himself put it, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Esther responds to this decisive moment that God confronts her with, with faith, with courage, with determination, with the words, if I perish, I perish. And these words are vaguely reminiscent of other words from another hero responding in faith to another decisive moment. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who faced with the decisive moment of going all the way to the cross to die for us 
said these words, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. Those words express Jesus' courageous determination to go to the cross for us. Esther certainly is heroic here. But just like any other human hero in the Bible, she's a hero, but she's not the hero. She's a savior, but she's not the savior. And her heroism and her heroic words point us ahead to a greater hero who faced a greater peril to bring about a greater salvation. Esther forsook the safety and luxury of queen in the palace. Jesus forsook his heavenly home. Esther risked her life. Jesus gave his life and laid it down. Esther risked death. Jesus, as the innocent and pure Lamb of God, suffered the wrath of God against the sins of the world. Esther brought about a human earthly salvation, but Jesus accomplished a divine and eternal salvation for all who trust in him. He died that we might live. He was forsaken that we might be accepted. He paid the penalty that we might be forgiven. And he rose from death so that we might have life in him. He died that we might live, and that's what we remember. Let's pray. Our God, we give you praise for Jesus, our great Savior who faced the great peril of the cross and suffered physical death and spiritual death so that we might have eternal life. He laid down his life in love for us. And help us as we partake of this sacrament to be reminded of the love of God displayed in the cross, and to be assured that your love is upon us if we are in Christ, and that whatever danger we face in this life, we are eternally secure in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.